The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 28th, 2019. On this week's show, Ben Lindberg of The Ringer will be here to discuss the Houston Astros' massive World Series comeback. Deadspin's Laura Wagner will then join us to talk about the Astros' massive World Series failures, how an executive taunted a female reporter by shouting about an alleged domestic abuser, and the team then failed to own up to it for a very, very long time. Finally, the New Yorker's Vincent Cunningham will help us overreact to week one of the NBA season. The Warriors, they're really bad. Maybe that's not an overreaction. We'll see. Joining me here in the Washington, D.C. studio, it is the author of A Few Seconds of Panic and Word Freak, Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Uh, did you want to talk about soccer? Happy before, morning. Before we get happy day into the rest of the show. Yes. Well, first, Christian Pulisic. Scored his first, second, and third goals for Chelsea. Couldn't do much against Canada. Clearly, Canada much stiffer than Burnley as an opponent. Clearly. And they were all great goals. They were fantastic goals. This was very exciting. He looked very excited, as he should have looked. (laughs) He looked the way that he should have looked. He's figuring out both how to play at this level and how to look at this level. Yeah, He's doing a good job of it. And we also have breaking news on the U.S. men's national team. Yeah. The uh, Dutch-American player, Serginho Dest, made a choice of what team he was going to play for internationally. He's 19 years old. He's a defender for Ajax and starts, which means he's really good. And he's chosen the United States of America. When we talked about Grant Wall, I was skeptical. I you thought were. he was going to go with, uh, with the Dutch. I was much more optimistic, I think. <laughs> I'm definitely uh, catastrophizing about the USMNT. I still kind of don't understand why he would want to play for this train wreck of a country, but more power to the young man. Well, maybe his vision is a little bit longer than yours, Josh, and he's more optimistic about the long-term prospects of the United States of America as a soccer power. I guess so. Hope he's right. <laughs> he did his video in Dutch announcing so, his choice. Odd young man. Odd young man. But hey, I'll, I'll be happy to root for him in uh, years to come. I am doing a book thing in Baton Rouge on Saturday. It's the rare LSU and Saints there a home double, game? double bye week. Oh. So there's no football in Louisiana. So I am the most exciting thing happening in Louisiana. In Baton Rouge on Saturday. It's 11 a.m. at the Louisiana Book Festival in the State Capitol Building House Chamber. I feel very important. A lot of ghosts rattling around in there. (laughs) I will make sure to bring my, what do you call that? Ghostbuster? Yeah, lightsaber. That's different, I think. Moving on, we are doing a live show December 3rd, Tuesday in D.C., the Hamilton Live. Tickets at slate.com slash live. Please come. Everybody who goes to the live show enjoys it. I've never heard a dissenting view on that. Maybe you can come and tell us that you didn't like it, just to expand our uh, collection of audience replies, or not. Do you think dissenters would actually tell us that the show sucked? They were dissenting and had too much to drink, maybe. But Mm. we'll find out. December 3rd, Hamilton Live, DC. Slate.com slash live. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th 
Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. For most fans of the Washington Nationals, there was just one highlight from Game 5 of the World Series in D.C. on Sunday night. Right before that moment, fans booed the shit out of Trump when he and his entourage from hell were shown on the Jumbotron and someone unfurled an impeach Trump banner. On the field, not so good for the former Montreal Expos. The Nats lost to the Houston Astros 7-1 to after dropping the two previous games in our nation's capital, 8-1 to and 4-1. to Our friend Ben Lindbergh is here. He writes and podcasts for The Ringer and is the co-author of the books The MVP Machine and The Only Rule is it has to work. Welcome back, Ben. Hey, guys. All right, the Nats had won 18 of their last 20 games, including eight straight in the playoffs, including games one and two in Houston. And they had the narrative momentum on their side because of the Astros' front office embarrassments. Then we came here to D.C. The three games actually seemed pretty simple to analyze because each of them was so lopsided. The Astros hit and pitched much better than they had, and the Nationals hit and pitched much, much worse than they had. And all of those things were connected. Yeah. I mean, not that we needed another example of momentum not really mattering in sports, but this would be exhibit A. The Nationals really had the big mo, as Josh Lyman put it on the West Wing heading into the weekend, but everything swung back in the direction of the Astros. I mean, the the Nationals, as you mentioned, were winning all their games. They were unstoppable. They had the clubhouse chemistry. They were doing the baby shark thing. And then this weekend, they just suffered a a total offensive outage. And really, the story of this World Series so far, aside from the -the off-the-field stuff, is that no home team has won a game yet. And really, that comes down directly to the fact that home teams are 4 for 38 with runners in scoring position in this series, which means that the Astros in Games 1 and 2 and the Nationals in every game since just have not capitalized on whatever opportunities they've had. And so... The Astros outscored the Nationals by a combined score of 19-3 to this weekend. I think that probably makes it sound a little more lopsided than it was since there were some tack-on runs late in those games that made them even less competitive. But really, we have not seen a team come back from behind to take the lead since the fifth inning of Game 1. So it sort of felt like whichever team took the lead was just going to hold on to it, which has made this series sort of a snooze. Momentum is often killed by the next day's starting pitcher. Wait, you're going to let Ben get away with a West Wing reference? Oh, yeah, that was bad. Uh, (laughs) But back to me. The next day's starting pitcher, classic momentum killer. And then the next day's starting pitcher wakes up and can't, like, move his neck or shoulder or anything, which is bad. The one that he throws with. If uh, you need to professionally throw a baseball. So I was thinking after the Astros came back to tie it, at two, like, all right, we're like now into the meat of the series. This is going to be exciting. We've got our Scherzer, Strasburg, Cole, Verlander situation all set up. And then Max Scherzer's dumb neck had to come and uh, ruin everything, Ben. Like if like the Nationals are, you are like way more top heavy than the Astros and the, your heavy top uh, has a bad neck, then you're <laughs> not in not in good shape. 
Yeah. And Nationals manager Dave Martinez has done a pretty good job of dealing with his team's top heaviness, and he's managed to use just his best six pitchers in as many innings as possible. In the Nationals' 14 games heading into Game 5, they had used basically the pitchers that they don't want to use for only 19 innings in total. But on Sunday, Martinez finally ran into a roadblock that he just couldn't manage around because Max Scherzer not only couldn't pitch, but literally could not move his arm, could not get out of bed without falling out, could not get dressed on his own. So there was just no question about whether he could take the ball in his game. And Max Scherzer is, in addition to being one of the best pitchers in baseball, he's almost a meme in that he is like the guy who never wants to give the ball up. He always wants Performatively to Performatively tough. Perhaps, yes. And so we've all been joking throughout the series about, you know, Max Scherzer must want to come into this game in the, you know, in relief the day after he starts. Like Dave Martinez must be fighting off Max Scherzer to get into this game. So if Max Scherzer says that he can't pitch and he's had many postseason opportunities, he's never won a World Series. And here it is, game five in DC, pivotal game. You know that he wanted to start as much as anyone humanly could. And he just couldn't do it, which meant that Joe Ross, who had not made a start since September and had not even been on the roster in the postseason rounds prior to the World Series, got the ball. And considering the circumstances and the competition, Ross did okay, but he would have had to be almost flawless going up against Garrett Cole. And and so we got denied the Garrett Cole-Max Scherzer rematch that we were hoping to see here. Yeah, we were hoping for sort of a 1-1 game that would come down to the 8th or ninth inning um, to get to the bullpens and see who was fresher and who actually, you know, who could actually hit the ball and something would happen. But the Astros have been hitting so well, I'm not sure that it would have mattered. Um, and I'm not sure it would have been determinative necessarily. They hit three two-run home runs last night. It feels like every eighth at bat, the Astros have been hitting a two-run home run in this series. Um, so... the you know, how much of this is the Nats bats being subdued by the Astros terrific pitching? And how much is it just that the Astros really have reverted to form? Yeah, I think it's largely the latter. No, this is the first time all season that the Nationals were held to fewer than four runs in three consecutive games. So that has never happened before. But the Nationals had never played the Astros in this season before the series. So I think the Nationals were calling themselves a buzzsaw when the series started. Steven Strasburg said that, and now they've kind of run into the buzzsaw themselves. The Astros are the best team in baseball. They have the best offense in baseball, a historically great offense that hadn't really shown up for much of the postseason prior to this weekend and then showed up all at once. So it kind of takes away some of the talking points and some of the analysis that we could do because Yes, there were questionable managerial moves that Dave Martinez made, although in retrospect, maybe he knew that Scherzer might not be able to go. And so he was sort of planning for that. And what looks like lack of aggressiveness in the moment was just planning for the future. But you could complain about some of those moves. You could complain about home plate umpire Lance Barksdale's zone in Game 5, which seemed to be floating all over the place and, and certainly seemed to hurt the Nationals a couple times. But ultimately, it comes down to the fact that If you score one run, you're almost certainly not going to win the game. (laughs) There have been 32 games, I think, this year in which an opponent scored one run against the Astros, and only one of them was a win back in April. The Twins managed to win a 1-0 game against the Astros and Justin Verlander. So 
that is not the way to win. And even if you had had the optimal managerial moves and the perfect umpire strike zone, odds are that that would not have changed things. And it's sort of a shame because we were sold a historic pitching matchup for this series. It really seemed to be that when you put these two pitching rotations together, this was, as many people pointed out before the series, probably the best collection of starting pitcher talent that we have ever seen in a World Series. So that was pretty exciting. But none of those pitchers has really performed up to their level. You know, in game one, we we got the, the Cole-Scherzer matchup, but neither one of them was really peak Cole or Scherzer. And I guess game two was the closest we've come when, you know, we sort of had a duel between Verlander and Strasburg, but that was about it. And, you know, we didn't even get the second Scherzer start, or at least not yet. So it just hasn't really delivered on the pre-series billing. We are going to get another Verlander-Strasburg in game six. And so this series is not totally irredeemable. It's still mm-hmm. uh, still going on. We still have the opportunity for for greatness. We made it to the game six. It could have been a sweep. I just feel like I have to buck you up here, Ben. You seem very <laughs> sad about how the series has been so lame with uh, all the excitement going into it. But, uh, you know, I guess I'm curious what you thought about uh, what both of you guys thought about the conversation about Barksdale strike zone in game five. I think in all sports and in playoffs in particular, just like we are more inclined to talk about things that are interesting or controversial. And in this game, there just wasn't anything really else to talk about on the field. Like if you didn't want to talk about uh, Trump getting booed. And so that, uh, the bad strike zone just kind of like fills the conversational chasm. But like with the way that, um, you know, the zone is superimposed on screen and we can see instantly whether pitches fall into it, it is like funny how the league and its broadcasting partners are really like emphasizing when umpires do badly and just like you can't ignore it. It's just like on the screen and you have to talk about no, it. I think the last thing you said, Josh, is the most intriguing to me that Major League Baseball allows this um, because it's certainly in their purview to tell Fox or Turner or whoever's broadcasting these games that we're uncomfortable with the focus being on the you know two-point line rectangle around the supposed strike zone so even is it though to their it's credit? not is it to their credit that they allow that to be shown well i think screen? on the one hand it's to their credit but on the other hand i'm not sure it enhances much and does distract from the flow of the game i mean some of the calls that barksdale was being criticized for and being criticized by the players on the field were obviously marginal i was going to say one or two of them were clearly strikes a couple of them were right on the zone or outside the zone. And it is entertaining to see Jan Gomes and read his lips, or you didn't even have to read his lips because you could hear the mic wherever it's positioned there, him saying sarcastically to Barksdale, oh, it's my fault? <laughs> After Barksdale apparently accused him of having bad framing on a clear strike or a borderline strike against Carlos Correa that led later in the inning to a two-run homer that put the Astros ahead. But, you know, that's entertaining. But for all of us at home to say, oh, that's clearly a strike, that's not clearly a strike. Because, Ben, the, the zone as it's drawn in behind a camera isn't 100% accurate, is it? The way we no, see it on television. It's definitely not. The, the real-time zone that you see on TV 
for one thing, it usually doesn't really adjust for each player's height. It's just sort mm-hmm. of a, a standardized zone, so that can be a problem. And there's just some error inherent in measuring the path of the pitch and cameras, you know, computers can be miscalibrated right. and there's uh, the MLB. And the, and the, and the camera yeah. angle is misleading too, because it is not directly behind the pitch. Right. It's to yeah. the side and that's always been an issue with this. And when MLB grades umpires based on the tracking technology, it gives those reports to them the next day after there's some processing and some adjustments done to make it more accurate. So that real-time in-the-moment impression is not always accurate, but because it's right in front of our faces, when the ball doesn't seem to go through that on-screen zone, it makes it pretty glaring. And I think there were a couple cases in Game 5 where it was exacerbated by the situation or by Barksdale's you know, response to the situation. A, there was the one where Carlos Correa seemed to possibly be struck out, and then he got the at-bat to continue, and he went on to hit a home run. So that obviously drives the memory home, whereas if he had just grounded out or something after that, no one would have cared all that much. And then there was a, a later instance where it seemed like Barksdale was calling a ball as payback because Jan Gomes, the Nationals catcher, had taken it for granted that there was going to be a strike call, and he started you know, whipping the ball around the infield, and, and then it was ruled a ball, evidently because he had been presumptuous about that. So that doesn't help. But I think, you know, we are probably heading for a world where we do have computer called strike zones. And I have mixed feelings about that in some respects, but I think it's inevitable because it's just kind of an untenable situation here where we have access to this accuracy and these readouts. It's kind of like with replay review. I think once fans watching at home and in the ballpark have the ability to see these things slowed down and replayed and know with certainty that the umpire got the call wrong, you can't really persist with the state of affairs where we just let incorrect calls stand. And even the most correct balls and strikes umpires get about 90% of their calls correct, which is pretty good. It's the best that a human can do, but it's just an impossible job for a human to do perfectly. And I think at some point we will acknowledge that and get computers calling these zones. At the very least, we won't get makeup calls and punishment calls and grandstanding as we sometimes do with human ups. Just quickly on this, Ben, do you have any sense of how this worked during the experiment in the Atlantic League this summer? We, there were plenty of stories when it was happening, but has there been any assessment of its efficacy? Yeah, I know that a lot of the players were unhappy with it, partially because the rulebook zone, the zone that the computers called, didn't perfectly map onto how the strike zone has historically been called. So you would get calls that technically were accurate, but they never would have been called by a, a human umpire, you know, a, a curveball that just nicked the front of the zone and then dipped below the plate and was caught well below the plate. That would be called a ball 100% of the time by a human ump, but the robot zone called it a strike. And so some of that is just adjustment, getting used to what the new strike zone looks like. And there were also issues with calibration, though, and, and with some of these things being off. There's still some obstacles to getting this working perfectly in real time so that you can get the accuracy and not have a delay that everyone would notice between the umpire getting the green light or the red light from the system and actually making the call. When you frame it around 90%, it's really interesting. It's just like 10% of calls being wrong seems bad. But then when you think like, all right, we're getting mad at umps for like having the same accuracy rate as like Steph Curry at the free throw line. It's just <laughs> like getting really pissed every time that Steph Curry misses a free throw. That that uh, uh, seems uh, seems a bit off, but they're just different 
acceptable standards of error in different uh you know realms of of human uh experience and so perhaps, yeah. <laughs> perhaps this is not an instructive analogy after all but <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of pitches in every baseball game i That's will say true. that too so even if you're 90 percent accurate you're still getting quite a few calls wrong in every game so true, true, true. no umpire ever has a perfect game so we're going to talk about the astros front office and brandon tobin in our next segment with laura wagner we're also going to talk to you about uh, your reporting on the Astros in our Slate Plus bonus segment, Ben. You wrote about them in your book with Travis Sacek, the MVP machine. But just at the end of this segment, I wanted to ask a very kind of broad question um, because you have reported on this team uh, and they're, they're thinking in the front office, like does their performance in this World Series, the fact that this is such a deep roster, this is not a top-heavy team, this is one where throughout the lineup, as Stefan said, you see guys hitting two-run homers. Like, Do you feel like the Astros, with all the negative press they've gotten, but with all of the success they've had in the past three years and in this World Series, do you feel like they will feel like this validates their approach, or do you think that they're going to actually go back and question themselves and say, despite all the success we've had, we're still approaching this wrong and there are changes that we need to make. Because in the statements that we've heard, it just does not seem like an organization that has like an, any kind of like deep sense of regret or self-knowledge. Contrition. No, not at all. The contrition was the word I was going to use and the lack thereof. I, I think you'll get into the details, I'm sure, in the next segment, but nothing about the Astros' response in the week uh, You know, following Brendan Tobin's outburst and the reporting about that has suggested that they are really taking a hard look at themselves. They seemed perfectly willing to do nothing, to put boilerplate statements out there, even after their first statement where they accused Stephanie Epstein, the Sports Illustrated reporter, of fabricating her report. After that, it was all just, you know, minimize and insincere apologies and really doing the bare minimum, I think, while they were getting rightfully dragged all week. They kind of responded to that. You know, they claimed that they had been proactive about it, but I think they were the opposite of proactive. And really, I think they may have gotten themselves into this situation by being so good at building baseball teams and by being criticized for the way that they built baseball teams and being vindicated over and over as their baseball teams turned out to be the best, perhaps the best of all time. And so if they win another World Series here, then I think they may be thinking, look, we can weather this, you know, as long as we collect the most talent and put the best team together and win World Series, most of our fans will forgive us. And, you know, we will sacrifice this one person who is directly responsible and will apologize vaguely at first and then later actually retract our statement. But we will continue to operate because what are the penalties ultimately unless MLB imposes some discipline? They keep winning, they keep drawing, and so you can kind of get away with this. Ben Lindbergh writes and talks about baseball for The Ringer. He's the co-author of The MVP Machine, and the only rule is it has to work. And we'll be talking with him more about the Astros in our bonus segment. We will. Ben, thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. 
Terms apply. Last Monday night, Sports Illustrated's Stephanie Epstein published a piece in which she reported that in the Houston Astros' champagne-soaked locker room immediately after they won the pennant, the team's assistant general manager, Brandon Taubman, quote, turned to a group of three female reporters, including one wearing a purple domestic violence awareness bracelet, and yelled half a dozen times, thank God we got Osuna. I'm so fucking glad we got Osuna. Osuna is Roberto Osuna, a relief pitcher the Astros traded for in 2018 after he was suspended for 75 games by Major League Baseball for allegedly assaulting the mother of his child. Osuna wasn't charged with a crime after the woman declined to testify, but he was nevertheless a distressed asset in purely economic terms, and the Astros got him on the cheap. Osuna has been a good pitcher for Houston, but on the night Taubman was shouting about him, he'd given up a game-tying home run. Later reporting revealed that Taubman was taunting one woman in particular, a reporter who has thus far preferred to stay anonymous and who in the past has tweeted out the number for a domestic abuse hotline during Osuna's appearances on the mound for the Astros. When Epstein's report went live, the Astros initially called the story misleading, irresponsible, and fabricated. The team has since issued a bunch of apologies for that initial statement. They've also fired Brandon Taubman. But it's going to be impossible to erase that initial message, one in which the organization proved that massive arrogance was not just Taubman's problem. It's a character flaw affecting the entire organization. Joining us now is Deadspin's Laura Wagner. Hello, Laura. Hi. So what stood out to you as the story has developed over the last week? The biggest thing that stood out to me is just how many times they messed up handling the situation. First, as you said, they accused Stephanie Epstein of fabricating the story. Then eventually they released a second set of statements from Taubman and Jim Crane, neither of which apologized and both of which kind of took the if anyone was offended, I'm sorry, uh, apology structure. Um, And then they finally just yesterday issued a retraction of the statement that said Epstein fabricated it and only after she asked them to retract it. So the fact that this took almost a week for them to retract their initial statement accusing a reporter of the worst thing that a reporter can do in journalism, I thought was just... um, kind of a crazy illustration of how the Astros organization works. I think the clearest indication of the way the Astros organization actually felt about this came during, obviously in the initial statements, but then when GM and baseball operations president Jeff Luno went before the media and really waffled, um, basically wouldn't say, I'm sorry, said that the statements were wrong, but then went on to say that, oh, there were conflicting accounts and people's memories weren't clear. I think he said, it's, we'll never know. We'll never what, know what happened, what happened right? <laughs> because time has elapsed. It's gone like a puff of smoke. We can't be sure. Rather than issue a clear and formal statement. And to say that the Astros don't have a cultural problem is just insane at this point after what's happened this last week. I don't think I've ever seen an organization misstep in sports as repeatedly as they did over the first five days. I just don't understand what breeds that sort of arrogance in a sports culture. And clearly, it's the kind of people you're hiring. It's the outlook you take to your colleagues. It's the outlook you take to the rest of the industry. And in this case, it's the outlook you take toward women employees, women who work in this space. Stephanie Epstein's original story stands in stark 
contrast to the Astros' responses to it. I was impressed by her piece when I read it initially, the fact that she chose to write this when maybe some other reporters would think that it was kind of self-obsessed. You know, why should we complain about how we were treated poorly? Some people just don't want to call attention to themselves in that way. But kind of the more the news cycles evolved and the week went on, the more I was actually impressed with that initial story. Because, Laura, it's incredibly challenging to break news on something where the news is actually something that happened to you. And the way that she was able to write accurately, it turned out, about what Tauman said and what he did. But also there was some analysis in that piece about how teams like the Astros want to sign guys like Osuna. They want to say, they want to have this press conference and say, we have zero tolerance for domestic violence. They want to donate, you know, some six-figure sum that's like a tiny percentage of Osuna's salary to charity. And then when you actually ask them to reflect the values that they claim to have, they get all like angry and annoyed at you for talking about something that's like, oh, this isn't about baseball. Like, you know, we've addressed that. And I thought that piece was just like so smart and actually is something that if you're like an aspiring journalist or in in, like journalism school, I think they should teach this story. It's like, this is unbelievably good, like covering breaking news with opinion and analysis where it's about you. Right. I was really impressed. Not only did she report on the story and report on it accurately, obviously, but she was also careful in her reporting. I mean, the fact that she included the detail about the woman who was wearing the purple domestic violence bracelet but did not identify the woman because she did not want to be identified and then managed to kind of take this one incident and show how it relates to how MLB treats players who have been accused of domestic violence and kind of point out the hypocrisies in how teams and the league deal with these players. I I agree. I thought it was really well done and I'm glad that she wrote it. I do think that this is a story that only a woman would write, I think. I mean, there was a guy from the Houston Chronicle who confirmed the story shortly after the Astros accused her of fabricating it. There was another reporter from Yahoo who also confirmed the story shortly after it was reported. So I think that people knew about it and the fact that she was the one to write it, I think she deserves a lot of credit for that. Right. It, and it's sort of what rises to in someone's brain that this is a story. You know, maybe it wasn't obvious to everyone who was in the room because what's your initial reaction to something like that? It's like, oh, this asshole. I know who he is. Brandon Taubman. He's a front office executive. He's number two in the baseball operations department. A rising star in the sport. And w- before this happened was, I think, everyone says was going to be a GM at some team. He's like seen as like a genius in baseball. Yeah. And so you hear something like that. And what's your initial reaction? It's, well, that was weird and a little scary. And I'm not quite sure how to process it. It's uncomfortable. The woman who he was directing his comments at um, certainly has felt uncomfortable. I mean, she is a, a reporter. It's not too difficult to identify who she is because of the details that NPR later reported in David Falkenflik's story that Taubman was directing his comments at her because she had tweeted out a number four domestic violence hotline whenever Osuna would pitch. So to have the, the sort of journalistic presence of mind to recognize that A, it's a story and B, this reflects badly on a senior executive in the sport. Yeah, that's why she deserves a lot of credit. Stefan, you vast a rhetorical question before about what makes an organization act like this or do these things. I think I have an answer for you. 
And I think it's partly about the Astros, but partly about the structure of Major League Baseball. I think Tubman is clearly, you know, knowing very little about him or nothing about him before this, is clearly arrogant, clearly thinks that he can say or do whatever he wants in this context of Major League Locker Room. And why does he think that? Because the team won 107 games this year, because they're a mini dynasty. Um, they won the World Series a couple years ago. And just completely separating out his personality or behavior, he is incredibly good at his job. And the Astros front office is incredibly good at their job. The reason that they're so arrogant is because they're the best (laughs) in the business. And in baseball, there is this kind of cult of the general manager, you know, this kind of post-Billy Bean moneyball scenario where these quant guys come in and they have, as a group, been extremely successful at reorienting the game, at figuring out how to acquire talent um, and how to get rid of talent and pick and choose who's going to be uh, you know, the best and most useful on the field. And it's not the same in other sports. Like in the NBA, you know, Masai Ujiri is the best executive in the NBA last year for the Raptors. And his genius move was like to trade for one of the greatest players in basketball. <laughs> I mean, it's like there, there's not as much you can do when it's like the the key to winning a championship is just like having the best players. And baseball, like the Nationals get to the World Series after getting rid of one of the most uh, the most expensive player in the game, Bryce Harper. And so these guys rightfully think that they are the reason that these teams are in the World Series. And so then you get this, uh, you know, culture, Laura, where they think they answer to no one. They think that uh, they're like playing God and uh, that obviously they can do and say and call whoever they, uh, you know, at anyone, anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Evan Drellich at The Athletic had a really good story that's kind of making this point and laying out a bunch of different examples about how this the entire team is framed around winning and efficiency and that's it. And this has kind of resulted in like the loss of humanity from the front office. It's all about ruthless quants maximizing efficiency and value. And the argument makes the case that they're sort of, sort of losing part of their humanity in the front office. Well, and, and part of that is, of course, because the Astros have systematically reduced the number of actual talent scouts in their organization, that they, they do believe that they are better at identifying and not just identifying, but as Ben Lindbergh's book um, with Travis Sawchick points out, not just identifying talent, but creating talent, that they're like God, we don't need people to tell us that someone's good. We can take someone by looking at them and make them good. I mean, Jeff Passan's story for ESPN about the culture of the Astros, I think, nailed that as well. And the 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 image that they've projected into the rest of Major League Baseball, contempt for the Astros runs deep and has well before this incident, Jeff wrote. Um, jealousy breeds some of it. The organization's arrogance accounts for the rest. The Astros painted themselves as a disruptor and reveled in the commotion. They lived with the perception that they didn't understand people. They fed their process, followed it with fealty, doubled down. They believed in it and they never had and they never had much of a reason not to. So we had Jeff on our show last week. He described the Astros as arrogant. Stefan, I don't think either one of us were thinking about Roberto Osuna at that point. Um, And so when we kind of asked him a follow-up question, what do you mean? It was the conversation proceeded more in kind of generalities. And that shows like why and how this works. Like we were thinking about the Astros are this great team. They've won so many games. And we had, I think, forgotten 
about um, all of the reporting that had been done in the past about the specifics of this team's arrogance. And so it takes an incident like this. Like, that's what Tauman did. He not only kind of disgraced himself, he revealed and exposed, uh, you know, what this organization is to people who, you know, including us, who might have been inclined to forget it or not talk about it during this World Series because we're like talking about, you know, Jose Altuve because he's so fun and tiny. And <laughs> he is fun and tiny. It is. He is. It, that's like the reality of of how the media and journalism reporting works, Laura, is that you start digging into something um, because of some like big external event, some like shock to the system. And otherwise, we just kind of a, a lot of time go along complacently and don't really like dig in and think about stuff like, you know, are these people like bad? <laughs> uh, you just kind of look at the results in sports. Yeah, um, I think that's probably true. Although I will say that Diana Moskovitz had a really good piece on this a, a long time ago, um, kind of like asking these questions and thinking about this. So well, we talked about this stuff a long time ago, too. We just didn't we just weren't talking about it during the World Series. No, definitely. It definitely gets uh, pushed to the side. Well, the other thing that I think gets pushed to the side, and I think we've done that a little bit right now, is that we forget how gender unequal Major League Baseball is, even relative to other sports. Um, Richard Lapchick does this annual gender and uh, racial report card on sports. For last year, MLB Central Office on Gender Equity gets a C grade from him. Senior administration at teams, C minus. Professional administration at teams, D plus. I mean, the Astros, if you look at their baseball operations uh, personnel list online, 43 positions, nine are women. The Nationals, 89 baseball ops jobs, three filled by women. And this was a workplace harassment episode. Yeah, I mean, it does bring up the issue of women in the locker room. Like Lisa Olsen was, you know, who was famously and awfully sexually harassed by the New England Patriots in the 1980s, was saying on Twitter, like, at least we're at the point now where no one is questioning whether Stephanie Epstein or any of these other women deserve to be in the locker room, like that is a shift. But the conversation now should be about, is this workplace a workplace that's safe for women or that, uh, you know, there's just whether it's an incident like this or just kind of like consistent low grade discomfort. Like, I think that's a good point to make, Stefan, that this is not a scenario where it's like, even if women are accepted as like, you're literally allowed to be in the locker room, it's still not necessarily a comfortable place. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I think it was so insane that the Astros first statement was that this was fabricated because everybody has accepted at this point that women do face challenges that men don't in sports media and in locker rooms. And that I think that's pretty well established and agreed upon. So for the Astros to say that she just made it up didn't make any sense. It didn't seem like there are any dissenting voices here either. The support for Stephanie Epstein among writers and other journalists was unanimous as far as I could tell. Yeah. And I thought it was kind of heartening to see everyone rally around her and support her like that. It was almost like there was an informal unionization happening around this one issue of sports writers all banding together over this issue. And you don't see that that often. There is, if you like 
are willing to wade into the cesspool. Sure. There are a lot of people who are, you know, saying this is beating a dead horse. We've been talking about this for a week now. Like, it's done. <laughs> Let's get over it. <laughs> Let's talk about baseball. And it's really the Astros' own fault. I mean, obviously, it's the Astros' own fault for the initial behavior. But they have prolonged this news cycle by putting out a horrible statement, like, literally every day. Sure, we're beating a dead <laughs> horse. You know, this happened a week ago. Well, we're recording this on a Monday. The Astros owner didn't issue that apology to Stephanie Epstein until Saturday night, and Epstein didn't report on it or tweet it out until Sunday morning. So, no, this is still happening. The other thing that really hasn't happened because of all this dithering by the Astros, we still don't know who in this organization approved that first egregious statement. And Brandon Taubman is the only person in the Astros organization that has suffered any repercussions for the organization's behavior. Major League Baseball is said to be investigating. Maybe there will be some sort of punishment to Luno, who's admitted reading that statement before it went out, the first one that accused Stephanie Epstein of fabrication or others in the team. Laura Wagner of Deadspin, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. All right, I wanted to let you know then in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk some more with Ben Lindbergh, and we're going to continue our conversation about the Astros, Brandon Tomman, and their arrogance as an organization, as a front office. Ben wrote about it in his book, The MVP Machine. We will inquire. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, you can sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can do that at slate.com slash plus. Sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. The NBA has been back for about a week now, which means there aren't nearly enough data points to tell us anything about how this season is going to play out. But actually, let's be real. We know how at least some of the season is going to play out. The Knicks appear bad. Clippers seem good. The KD-less, Clayless Warriors. I'm actually going to pass the mic to Draymond Green for this assessment. I would like to see us play harder. You know, that, that'll help a little bit, but... The reality is we fucking suck right now. And, you know, hopefully we'll get better. Uh, We'll continue working at it and try to get better, but we're just not that good right now. And that's, I mean, I I don't know what better way to frame that for you or uh, tell it. You know, I could try in Spanish, but I ain't really that good in Spanish. (laughs) That's really the best way I can tell it to you right now. Joining us now is Vincent Cunningham, a staff writer and the co-theater critic at The New Yorker. Uh, I think we got that without the Spanish, right, Vincent? Yeah, I mean, uh, he's coming across pretty clear for me. So did you hear the part, though, where Draymond paused for like half a beat after we (laughs) fucking suck before he said right now? That is what I call optimism. 
That's early That's season right. optimism. The Warriors may be 0-2. They may have been losing to the Thunder by 33 at halftime, but they only suck right now. The presence of mind. <laughs> it's a good perspective from Draymond. The Warriors' official Twitter account, Vincent, is tweeting stuff like, tough one in OKC, <laughs> and learn and move forward. These are the tweets of like... These are like tweets that the Washington Wizards send out. It's like a whole new mentality for the whole organization. Like, how are you adjusting to these new look bad warriors? Well, it's been really rough for me because I honestly, I spent all summer sort of befuddled at the prognostications of doom and totally writing off these warriors. Because I always figured, hey, like Steph's still there, Draymond's still there. And I actually am a big um uh, D'Lo fan. I love him. So it's like, you know, I, I, I thought they would be okay. The defense would be not so great, but they'd be able to um, kind of make up for it. What I didn't really account for was the total lack of depth elsewhere. So it's actually been a rough transition for me. I found myself watching that OKC game just kind of in a state of horror. It was it was really, really, really bad. It was 70 to 37 at halftime. That's Ooh. really, really bad. The final score was 120 to 92. Really did not indicate. Yeah, the, uh, the the blowout factor there. The Warriors are very, very young, too. What is it, nine players that are 23 or younger? I mean, there really is only so much that the two of them can do right now, absent a third wheel, Clay Thompson, and absent some of the other good players that and they've allowed to leave. I mean— It's not like any of these young guys have, like, amazing pedigrees no. either, though. It's not like oh. there's, like, am- amazing young talent— up and down this roster, no. and they just need to like figure it out as the season. No, goes on. so you're playing without Clay Thompson, you're playing without Iguodala, you're, you you've let go Iggy and Sean Livingston and Demarcus Cousins and Quinn Cook, and this is what you're left with. Yeah, this is precisely what they're left with. Draymond has always been um, a guy who's amazing on a great team. He is like the the best fourth piece ever in the history of the NBA. And there's always been these questions, Vincent, about how good or valuable he really is. And it's all about context when you're a a complimentary player. And this was one of the questions about this team. It's like when you're counting on Draymond Green to score a lot, you're probably going to be disappointed. But he just has this force of will about him. And there have been times throughout this dynastic run where despite all the talent they have, it has been Draymond who's been driving that team like with his will and with his good play to success. And so it does lead you to wonder, like, what can he do with just force of will with this roster? And apparently, so far, what he can do is tell his teammates that they suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's rough because, I mean, even I mean, just last season, a couple months ago in the finals and in the uh, series before the finals against Portland, you just saw him sort of just like, he had kind of lost that the, his now mythical 25 pounds and was just sort of rushing up the court and he, everything he did looked beautiful. But I mean, it's, everything is so contextual and it shows you the importance of contingency in basketball. There's a, like a, a version of Draymond Green that's drafted by the Nixon who we just think of as just a guy, a, a, you know, another person along the list of, you know, sort of mediocre uh, Nick athletes. But on a different scale, that's the same thing with Steph, right? We Part of what's so devastating about him is that he's always been surrounded by people who are able to make space for the incredible things that he does. And you see, I mean, he's still scoring and do, he's all over the place for this team, uh, Steph Curry is. But 
it's not the same. He doesn't that that sort of third quarter um, detonation that usually happens. Just there was nothing even close to it because his, nobody had to pay attention to his teammates. So it just shows you how contingent all this stuff really is. Speaking of contingency, opening night of the NBA, the national TV schedule was Pelicans and Raptors. The Pelicans, mm. the level of national interest in the Pelicans is highly contingent on the presence <laughs> of uh, a healthy, a healthy need Zion Williamson. I enjoyed watching the. Pels take the Raptors to overtime. I'm not sure uh, most of America did. But uh, the bigger, you know, sorry, Raptors, the like more interesting game on that opening night was Lakers and Clippers, the first game of LeBron and and AD versus Kawhi Leonard. Paul George is out with an injury. Shouldn't you say that Zion is out with injury? I mean, this is a problem. Yeah, I said healthy need. Well, you're assuming everyone knows that his knee isn't healthy. His knee is not healthy. He's out for however long he's out for. He had surgery. We're not concerned at all. Anyway, back to <laughs> back to L.A. So uh, first game of LeBron and Anthony Davis versus uh, Kawhi Leonard and the Clippers. Paul George is out, but this shows the importance of having a good and deep roster in the NBA. The Clippers bench in that game outscored the Lakers like a million to two. Um, and Vincent, you wrote uh, a really nice piece for the New Yorker about watching Kawhi on the Clippers. Kind of what did you see from him in that game? It was just amazing. And I mean, last year was this incredible sort of tour de force. He just round after round, even as his leg was more and more hurt, at least to all appearances, he just kept on getting better. And it seems like he just, he's on an uninterrupted trajectory since then. Um, he seems to have gotten somehow even more muscular. That guy looks like he's like, like basketball is secondary to his like eventual bodybuilding career. And he just, he gets to these spots and just knocks people over. And it just, he just knows exactly where he wants to be. And he's got this weird upright posture where he just kind of, it just looks like he's walking over to the spot. And if there's somebody on, on it, he says, excuse me, you need to move now. And it, it's just, it, it, he doesn't play like anybody else. And he does it within this, again, within this great context that the Clippers have already built. So there are all these great defensive players like Patrick Beverly and um, Montrez Harrell. And they're all just like, it's, it just seems like a team that's running like it, like they're like on the way into the playoffs instead of the first couple games of the season. They've been, they've been awesome. And Kawhi is kind of the whole reason there. I'm just going to quote you because this was lovely. He has volleyballs for shoulders and melons for biceps, you wrote. <laughs> Good line. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. It's it's amazing. I don't know how he keeps flexible, but those shoulders. I saw him do a, a jump shot, and I was like, that thing's going to pop. It's um, unbelievable. I didn't realize, Stefan, before um, seeing this game, how much this move to L.A. for Kawhi, like, you could talk about it in terms of marketability. He isn't a Terminator commercial, which is very awkward, um, and I think has been overpraised. But I didn't realize how this move to L.A., actually reflects Kawhi leaning into his own unpopularity because nobody actually in LA cares about the Clippers, even when the Clippers are good and the Lakers are terrible. <laughs> like it's truly evinces a deep understanding of self for Kawhi Leonard to sign on to this team that is like extremely well constructed and seems set up to just like run through the Lakers and, and everybody else. And yet that no one will like or care about. <laughs> well, I mean, doesn't that sort of fit in with his previous homes, too? I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, this is his brand in a he way. He knows what to do on the court and off the court. Which is as little as possible off the court. 
and that makes sense for him. And he is a, he's viewing this about as objectively and clinically as an athlete could view where he lives and where he works. He makes wanting to play for the Lakers just seem like a fundamental flaw and weakness. It's just like Anthony Davis, like you like willingly signed on to play with it. I mean, like we're talking ourselves into it at this point, like Dwight Howard, like speaking, speaking of, uh, <laughs> of volleyballs and grapefruits like Dwight Howard looks pretty good but like he's still fundamentally Dwight Howard right I don't I don't know if that's going to change throughout throughout the year Vincent yeah the Lakers thing is so strange because I don't know it looks it's a team that looks like if you take everybody away from their location in like time it looks awesome it's like Rajon Rondo Dwight Howard and um I don't know. It's but it it's just funny that like LeBron always finds himself in this situation. It's like him, one other great person, and then we get twenty games into the season and it's like, oh, LeBron's team isn't good enough. And we do it all the time. And then they have like a locker room, like a, a players only meeting about it, and then there's one big trade. It's just like you could kind of forecast your way all the way to the end with this team and like their eventual second round exit. But we should um, say the Lakers are two and one. It's not, and they they only lost to the Clippers. They don't look, they don't look they don't look like as bad as some of the uh, past LeBron teams do. But I still think it is prescient to forecast a early season players only meeting. It's got to happen. It's got to happen. <laughs> what are the other kind of early season storylines that you're excited about or not excited about, Vincent? Well, one of the things that I always love about sort of the beginning of the season is just looking to see who actually got better when, you know, that we kind of, part of the illusion, especially I I find in the NBA is like, if so-and-so was good last year, then you know they're going to be great in the future, right? Like that was the that was the Jason Tatum uh, trap. But like, it turns out Trey Young is just awesome now. He just figured out exactly what he's supposed to be. So I'm excited. People like that. I'm excited about Pascal Siakam. I'm excited about all these people that gave us some glimpses in, in years before and uh, uh, and are coming into it now. Should we feel sad about the Raptors in any way that, hey, we saw the best iteration of them last year? Or do we genuinely believe that they have a chance of getting back to at least the Eastern Conference finals? I don't think they'd be the favorite. I mean, I think no, the Sixers not. and Celtics and Bucks are all ahead of them. But as Vincent was saying, Siakam is really, really good. Uh, yeah. And he has a chance to be a franchise cornerstone and they just extended him. And they're not in a bad position. I mean, they've got Marcus All and Kyle Lowry still, but they're not on like super long-term deals. They do have a bunch of young talent. And so I think they ended up, you know, they, they got a title and they're like, they didn't have to totally mortgage their future to get it. So... We're all good. Yeah, I kind of like it. Yeah. And they've got people who we got to see in the finals last year and seem to still be getting better. Like uh, not just Siakam, but Fred Van Vliet. He's been looking good. You know, I, I like the way he plays. They're, Norman Powell. They're all these guys that now we know a little bit. and We can chart the rest of their progress. Definitely the weirdest moment of the opening week of the NBA season was in that opening uh, game between the Pelicans and the Raptors where it was tied in the last minute. And the Raptors, like, I think it was after a timeout. They like cleared out and just had Norman Powell at the top of the key, just like <laughs> yeah. dribble and yeah. ran out the shot clock and shot like a 30 footer. It was extremely confusing. It's like, do they realize that this is Norman Powell? Uh, <laughs> it, it's like a fu- it, it definitely showed the like <laughs> the cliff that this franchise had, uh, you know, fallen yeah. off from last year's final. But Raptors won't be bad. Back to Trey Young for a second. He has been shooting all these threes from the logo. Chris Porzingis made a 
three from the logo. It's like, what is that, like 30, 35 feet away? Mm-hmm. I feel like this is the next stage of the NBA's three-point revolution. It's well, don't, like don't, not you get a, a, don't you get a car for making that shot? <laughs> I think you should. <laughs> this is like the gamification of the NBA. It's like uh, it feels like Vincent players just enjoy shooting from there. And it's like a, it's an incredibly fun highlight to watch. But I just feel like if the logo actually wasn't on the floor, there would be no reason for players to shoot <laughs> from that spot on the court. No, it's right. I did, Even now, things that seem like regular three pointers I've been noticing are just like in easily a foot behind, right? I think everything has moved back. People just kind of, I watched Joel Embiid take one that was, you know, like a 24 footer in the, like the course of a play the other night. And I was just kind of thinking about that. Um, Yeah. First of all, they like to do it and it's a great highlight. And also though, every year we get an influx of sort of, you know, starter quality defenders who are incredibly fast and strong and big and everything. It's like, there's there's nowhere else to go like the space is 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 a continuing problem i think so it's like the only way we can make space for ourselves and continue to shoot a bunch of threes is just to go back and back and back there does seem to be like a a sort of basic geometry problem i wonder what the limit is is half court the limit is there no limit is 94 feet the limit you do have like an eight second backcourt clock so you can't just kind of stand stand back there and just fling it up you do kind of have to be in the front court i guess a lot of time yeah i guess that's true and you know teams want to go six seconds or less so yeah maybe that's not a barrier what uh what rookies do we like so far zion is out for a few weeks uh rj barrett the knicks i mean you know not much we can say about the knicks they're going to be terrible as we've already alluded to how's john morant doing he looks he looks pretty great i mean he just took got, got a great block what was that last night against yeah, Kyrie Sunday Irving? Against Kyrie. Sun- yeah, Sunday night against Kyrie Irving to, to take the Grizzlies to overtime against the Nets, and then they ended up winning that game. And he had thirty points, nine assists. Yeah, he had the game-winning assist to Jay Crowder with like under a second to go for uh, you know the the winning three-pointer. That guy seems good. He's awesome, and he's like he's one of he's one of these people that you can tell everybody else likes playing with. He hits people in their spots. Fun guy to watch, really fun. But you kind of grazed over R.J. Barrett, who is for the record. <laughs> Good. <laughs> For the record, will be potentially a starter in the NBA. Yeah. Knicks fan. Really Vincent, serious Vincent stuff. Cunningham. Thank you. Yeah, he has looked better than I think people thought he might have looked in, in before the season started. So let's give some credit there. No need just to insult the Knicks unnecessarily. There are plenty of reasons to insult them necessarily. Um, and let's wrap this up by noting that now that the games have started, uh, we're a weekend. The whole like China thing just recedes even further into the background. And I think the whole what thing? Excuse me. <laughs> there's this big country. There is a tweet. Uh-huh. And there's the details are, are getting a little fuzzy. But, you know, uh-huh. on the one hand, it is obvious and predictable that this was going to happen. Uh, on the other, it's just another kind of reminder or indicator that the fact that Daryl Morey tweeted when he did was just like the precise time when it was calibrated to get the most attention. Like there was nothing else going on in the league to distract from it. And actually quite the opposite because the teams were, and and Adam Silver were heading to China. Just as like how, and we talked about this a little bit with the Astros and the World Series too, just shows like how easily we're 
distracted by the bouncing ball. And like there was no there was no bouncing ball to distract us. Well, I would say there's a third hand here. And I think that Adam Silver and the NBA are still going to be incredibly concerned internally. I mean, China did not. The, the, the Rockets games are basically banned from airwaves. I mean, they were not showing NBA games this week during the first week of the season. There are still serious, serious repercussions. And just because we're not as focused on it as we were when there were no games being played doesn't mean that the NBA isn't still scared shitless. Vincent Cunningham writes about theater and basketball for The New Yorker. Thanks as always. Thank you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. Josh, I think we should dive back into Washington baseball history. Dive. Uh, Emma Bachelary of Sports Illustrated tweeted out a, a paragraph from the Washington Post's account of the great Walter Johnson, pitcher Walter Johnson, big train, his uh, nuptials back in 1914. Uh, let's celebrate them. We're, we're a little bit late. A little late, but hey, the, the Johnsons. Gifts, the gifts are in the mail. For sure. Um, this was uh, in the June 25th, 1914 issue of the Washington Post. Walter Johnson, world's champion pitcher, yields the palm to Cupid and weds Miss Hazel Lee Roberts, the world's greatest pitcher before whose resistless arm all other rivals have gone down to defeat, met his master in the love God and gracefully surrendered when Walter Johnson of the Washington American League team was quietly married last night to Miss Hazel Lee Roberts, daughter of Representative E.E. Roberts of Nevada at the home of the bride's parents, the Raymond Apartment House, 1498 Monroe Street, Northwest. On podcasts in 1914, would they just read straight news stories from 1809 and laugh about... (laughs) How silly and anachronistic everything was. (laughs) They did. The tumult and the shouting which greeted his wizard-like prowess at the baseball park were in striking contrast with the exclusive and simple ceremony at the home of the bride. Where's the part where we get to the afterball name? Is it like, what's your wizard-like prowess? Teammates didn't know. Walter Johnson, private guy. Teammates didn't know he was getting married. The bride wore a cream lace dress covering a cream taffeta skirt because everyone wants to know what the what? bride was wearing. Stefan, what's your cream taffeta skirt? No. Let's get, let's get on with it here. No. Car wouldn't start after the ceremony. Johnson had to hand crank it to get it going. I think we'll go with Miss Hazel Lee Roberts. All right. Stefan, what's your Miss Hazel Lee Roberts? Well, there was a lot of historical actuallying in D.C. last week. The last time a Washington team won the World Series was 1924 with Walter Johnson. Big everyone, train. everyone noted, big train. But Mr. actually, Mr. Hazel Lee Roberts. But actually, the last time a Washington team was in the World Series was 1933 when the Senators lost. But actually, the last time a Washington team was in the World Series was 1948 when the Homestead Grays won the Negro Leagues version. But actually, the Grays played all of those series games on the road because the Washington NFL team was using Griffith Stadium. So actually, the last World Series game played in D.C. before this weekend was in 1945. 
also the Homestead Grays. I looked up that series. The Grays' two-year run as champions ended in four straight games at the hands of the Cleveland Buckeyes. The Grays had the big stars, Josh Gibson, Buck Leonard, Cool Papa Bell, but those dudes were old. The Buckeyes outscored the Grays 14-3. That game three in D.C. was a 4-0 shutout. The legendary African-American newspaper reporter Wendell Smith of the Pittsburgh Courier wrote that the sweep was one of the biggest surprises in baseball history. Smith's column about the series had a longer second section about the latest news in baseball's slow road to integration, which black writers like Smith had been championing for years. And this was much more interesting to me than the reports on the Grays losing. Earlier in 1945, under pressure from progressive politicians and public figures, New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia had established the Mayor's Committee to Integrate Baseball, urging all three New York teams to sign black players. Smith got hold of a statement given to the committee by the president of the Yankees, Lee McPhail. Smith called McPhail the mouth, freckle-faced Mary Mack, madcap Larry, loquacious Larry, and Uncle Larry. I found McPhail's statement online. It was acquired by the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City a few years ago. It is a testament to the arrogance, excuse-making, victim-blaming, and straight-out racism that afflicted baseball for more than a century. McPhail started by acknowledging that black people liked sports and were good at them and claimed that, quote, the majority of Americans cared mainly about, quote, the excellence of performance in sport rather than the color, race, or creed of the performer. Then he blamed groups of political and social-minded drumbeaters for trying to force MLB to integrate. Baseball actually wasn't a Jim Crow operation, McPhail said. The problem was that people just didn't understand the complex business of baseball. Indeed, McPhail's first argument against integration in that statement was that MLB derives substantial revenue from operations of the Negro Leagues. Talk about showing your ass. The Yankees, he admitted, netted almost $100,000 a year hosting Negro League games and didn't want to give that up. McPhail also said that integration was impossible because Negro League's players were already under contract, there wasn't a single black player good enough to play in the majors anyway, and the Negro Leagues didn't deserve cooperation because they lacked, quote, a sound and ethical operations basis, end quote. Wendell Smith dismembered McPhail in his column, not just through insults. First, he noted that McPhail had been an army colonel in the war, fighting to perpetuate the ideals of democracy. Now McPhail was, quote, through waving the flag, he's going back to business as usual. The major's M.O., Smith wrote, was to, quote, soak Negro League owners for everything but the air consumed within the confines of the parks, strip them of everything they can without being illegitimate, and then add pain to misery by saying, get yourselves straightened out. Major League teams charged Negro League's visitors for everything from advertising to seat dusters, Smith wrote. On October October 23, 1945, eight days before the LaGuardia Commission issued its report, Branch Rickey of the Brooklyn Dodgers signed Jackie Robinson to play for the team's minor league affiliate in Montreal. Rickey gave a two-hour and 15-minute interview to Wendell Smith. Smith wrote that the, quote, heavyset, bespectacled diamond mogul signed Robinson because he believes the Negro shortstop is a great prospect and because his conscience would not permit him to wallow in the mire of race. 
racial discrimination, end quote. Robinson debuted with the Dodgers in April 1947, three months after Josh Gibson of the Homestead Grays died at age 35 of a stroke. A black player wouldn't play for the Yankees until 1955. One last, actually, Josh, after Sunday night, D.C. hasn't hosted a World Series victory since 1944 when the Homestead Grays beat the Birmingham Black Barons in Game 5 of the Negro League Finals, four runs to two. Josh, what's your Miss Hazel Lee Roberts? I was just about to cite that, but you anticipated my citation. Did you know that in the 1944 Negro uh, League World Series, there was a game played in New Orleans? I didn't know that, but I did know from doing this research that the Negro Leagues played so many of their games on the road because they were, as McPhail you know, noted, they were basically indebted and at the mercy of uh, major league clubs, the stadiums that they that they shared and were tenants in. Yeah. So, so like a, a lot of the games were road games in all of these series. Yeah. So even in the World Series, Pelican Stadium, 1944. I did, not, I did not know that until a couple of minutes ago. So my afterball is similar conceptually. I have a lot of friends who have paid a lot of money to go to this World Series in D.C. Tickets are going for like $1,000 on the secondary market. Even if you paid face value, it's like 300 bucks to get into the stadium. Now, as we've been discussing, the Washington Nationals have treated their spendthrift fans to three consecutive losses, uh, which cannot be a super great feeling. You're paying for the privilege to watch your team go down to a humiliating defeat. Got to be the president, though. <laughs> Fair point. Fair trade. But it's not just a D.C. thing in this World Series. Astros fans... Went home unhappy after games one and two. Everyone's sad. Everyone's angry. Everyone has sorrows. They're all getting drowned during this World Series. There's something kind of hilariously demented about a series in which no fans are happy, which led me to wonder, has there ever been a seven-game playoff series in which no one is ever happy? That is, has there ever been a seven-game playoff series in which the road team wins every game? I'm not the first person to ask this question. You can find a bunch of threads about this on Reddit and Quora and other message boards. The consensus answer is no, this has never happened. In the first round of the NBA's 1984 Eastern Conference playoffs, the then New Jersey Nets beat the Sixers in a five-game series with the road team winning every game. That is a five-game series. There have also been a bunch of seven-game series in which the road team won as many as five games, but that's it. In baseball, the Rangers beat the Rays three to two. In the 2010 AL Division Series, again, uh, road team winning every game. Again, five-game series. Same with the 2012 NLDS, Giants over the Reds. Uh, NHL, bunch of series with five road wins. No best of seven series with seven road wins. So we could be seeing history here, Stefan. The Astros lose a game six at home. And then the Astros lose game seven at home. First time ever in any of the major professional sports. Unless I screwed this up. If I did, let me know. I don't think I did, though. But that's not the end of this afterball. That would be a disappointing end. A search in the annals of ice hockey did bear some frozen fruit, Stefan. 1992, playoffs for the American Hockey League, the American Hockey League being the top-tier minor league for the NHL. In the AHL, they play for the Calder Cup. Shout-out to Frank Calder, president of the NHL from 1917 to 1943. All right, the Calder Cup, the Adirondack Red Wings, now defunct, then of Glens Falls, New York, They're playing the St. John's Maple Leafs, now defunct, then of St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador, Canada. This was a series in which fans of the uh, visitors were truly challenged if they wanted to see their team on the road. Uh, I Google maps it, 32 hours and 1,600 miles. You got to go Trans-Canada Highway 
Uh, this route has tolls. This route includes a ferry. This route crosses a country border. Your destination is in a different time zone. And, and what year are we talking here? This is 1992. Oh, okay. Air travel did exist, but I'm trying to uh, – come on. I'm, tr- I'm trying to sure. ma- make it seem as hard as possible. I just want to assure all of uh, our listeners that no fans in these arenas were ever happy. So seven-game series – Game one at St. John's, Adirondack wins 6-3. to three. Game two at St. John's, Adirondack wins 7-4. Game three at Adirondack, St. John's wins 4-3. Game four at Adirondack, St. John's wins 4-1. Game five at St. John's, Adirondack wins 3-1. None of these games are even close. There was one, one goal game. Game six at Adirondack, St. John's wins 5-2. All right, game seven. We're going to Newfoundland and Labrador. Load this up is, the dog sled. This is at St. John's. Going back. Chance to, to win it all to take home the Calder Cup. No. Adirondack wins 5-2. to two. The coach of Adirondack was actually Barry Melrose, who after that year would go on to take the job with the LA Kings. He wrote about it in his book and said absolutely nothing interesting about this Shot. phenomenon, so we're not going to quote him. The Glens Falls, New York newspaper did cover this assiduously, though. The sports page headline on May 30th, 92 was, of course, Road Sweet Road. Uh, same day in that paper, uh, there was a front page story in which the fans were quoted about their feelings. Jim and Chris Fitch stood in the top aisle of the Glens Falls Civic Center, leaning over a railing and listening to a radio broadcast. I'd rather have seen it here, said Jim Fitch, a smile creeping across his face. But it doesn't matter. All that matters is that we won. There was positive news in this story, though. Best of all, anyone who wanted to see it could, thanks to a deal local cable station, TV8, worked out with a Newfoundland channel. And watch it, they did. 200 or so Wings diehards pecking Heritage Hall while countless others watched at local bars or in their living rooms. TV8's ratings never were so good. Victory Parade, June 1st. Finally, the uh, fans in Glens Falls get to greet their conquering hero. The crowds were overwhelming. 250 people showed up. Just what a, what a throng. It was raining, though. This uh, story just made a lot of excuses about what an amazing showing this was, considering it was raining. But I think, you know, they were just unhappy because they kept losing at home. You got to win at home, teams. Lock it down. But hopefully they'll continue losing to set this all-time record. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you might want even more. Hang up and listen. In our bonus segment this week, we talked to Ben Lindbergh about the Astros and Brandon Tevin. As we were working and, and reporting on the Astros to some extent, you know, for one chapter in the book, they made the trade for Roberto Asuna, who at the time was suspended for domestic violence. And so, of course, we realized that we have to acknowledge this. We have to explore what led to this. Now, the Astros were not the only team to have acquired a, a player who had been suspended for domestic violence or, or to continue employing a, a player who had been suspended for that. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. Sign up at slate.com slash plus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 